This morning, I want us to uh, briefly, I know, I know it's very hot in here today, and I know that uh, it's, it's uncomfortable, and I also know that everybody's just dying to get downstairs and have a hot dog. So we're going to try to be as quickly, quick as we can today. We're not going to be in Nehemiah today. We have been in a series in Nehemiah for a while, and uh, we also have been in a series called uh, Roots Down, Fruit Up, uh, which is a, kind of a theme that we have chosen for 2011. And it's based on, uh, I think it's Isaiah 37.11 that says that if you take root to downward, you'll bear fruit upwards. And that's our goal, is to once in a while talk about some various topics, some various uh, scriptures and passages that will help us uh, just kind of look, dig a little bit deeper in our Christian walk and in our relationship with each other, our relationships with God. And so uh, what we were doing prior to the start of our study in Nehemiah is we were alternating every other Sunday. We would talk out of our, whatever book we were in at the time it was Acts, and then the following Sunday we would look at one of these topics. I'd like to kind of get back to that. And uh, so we'll be in Nehemiah again next week. But today I want to talk about a topic which I think may be needed and helpful to us all. I know that once in a while I have to remind myself of this particular thing. And that is how to have Christian joy. How to have Christian joy. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to turn to any passage today. I'm going to have a whole lot of passages that I'll just rattle off. But uh, uh, if you want to look at them up as we go, you can have your Bibles ready. But there's only one verse, which is our text. It's John chapter 15 and verse number 11, where Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So let's pray. And then we'll see what the Lord has to say about how to have Christian joy. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege, Father, for which I am not worthy. I pray that you would help me today. Fill me with your spirit. And just speak through me, I pray. Teach us, Father. Help us to rejoice in what we have in Jesus, we pray. And we pray it in his name. Amen. You know, the Bible is absolutely full of verses that tell us that Christians should be the happiest, most joyful people on the face of the earth. Let me just share a few of them. One of them happens to be in Nehemiah. So if you are looking forward to Nehemiah this morning, here you go. Here's your verse from Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse number 10. But there are plenty of other places where it teaches the same thing. In the presence, in thy presence is fullness of joy, the psalmist said. And be glad in the Lord, and rejoice ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Even in Ecclesiastes, where it's kind of a sorrowful book, uh, even in Ecclesiastes we read that God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. Isaiah said, therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. If you remember our study in Acts, you know that there was mention of joy in there. Acts chapter 13, verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Paul said to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. We're saying we've got to have joy. And yet often we don't seem to experience that, do we? Often we, uh, we, we, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say we, maybe I should say you. I hope it's not me, but sometimes I think it seems to me like Christians are walking around with hanged-off faces and down, and like they're not happy, like they're not experiencing joy. I think sometimes we... We feel like King David in Psalm chapter 51 when he said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Because something's happened. We don't seem to feel it. We don't seem to be experiencing it anymore. Sometimes we are more like Isaiah when he said, There is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. And the mirth of the land is gone. You ever feel like that? Or maybe like uh, Solomon in Proverbs when he said, Even in laughter the heart is sorrowful. 
And the end of that mirth is heaviness. Or, or maybe like Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 5 when he said, The joy of our heart has ceased and our dance has turned into mourning. We know that the Bible teaches that as believers, we have access to the joy of the Lord. We know that we can have Christian, we can have joyful Christian lives. I think sometimes we just forget how. I think sometimes we let the cares of this life and the problems of this world overwhelm us to the point that we need to be reminded of just what we have and of what reasons we have for joy. And so for just a few minutes this morning, I want to just try to remind us all, myself included, of how we can have Christian joy. Uh, seven very quick points here this morning. None rocket science. All things which you're going to say, well, duh. But we need to be reminded of them sometimes. Here's number one. How can we have Christian joy? We can have Christian joy by re- reminding ourselves that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. You say, yeah, I know that. God so loved the world, the Bible says he gave his only begotten son. I know that. Greater love had no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. God demonstrated his love for us in the while we were yet sinners first. Of course, I know those things. Jesus loves us. The songwriter said, I am so glad that my Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. He loves us. You know, the love of family is a wonderful thing. I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, Nick's little talk there. Sorry, I can't stand that. I can turn that off. I enjoyed Nick's talk, but you know the thing that jumped out at me the most is when he waved at his girls. And I thought, you know, I just thought it's amazing. Is it not the love of family? 7,000 miles can separate, and yet the love of family is there. And the love of God's family is precious. I don't know about you, but I love you guys. I love this church. I, I, and I think, that, I think that we love each other. I, I think that this is a very friendly, loving church. The love of God's people, God's family is precious. But you know what? The love of Jesus surpasses it all. Makes it all look like nothing. You might have the best family relationship in the world and it pales in comparison to the love Jesus has for you. We might have the most loving, friendly church that has ever existed on the face of the earth since Pentecost, and yet it pales in relationship to the love Jesus has for you and for me. It is unconditional, it is unending, it is unbelievable, it is unexplainable, it is inexplicable, it is inexhaustible. He loves us. He loves us. There's a little chorus we sing once in a while that says, think about his love. Think about his goodness. Think about His grace that's brought you through. And I would suggest this morning that if we'll but think about His love, it'll bring us joy. He loves you. Number two, another thing that we need to remind ourselves of that will help us to have Christian joy is this. Jesus is not angry with you. Jesus is not angry with you. Paul said in what I believe is the most exciting, wonderful chapter in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. No condemnation. If you write in your Bible, which you should, you ought to underline those two words. No condemnation. John chapter 3 and verse number 18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. You ought to underline those words. Not condemned. John chapter 5 and verse number 24 says, Verily, verily, I say to you, He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You've got to underline those words. Shall not come under condemnation. He is not angry with you. I had a great name once. I had a couple of great names. And I'm sure I've told you this story about my great name named Pharaoh. Pharaoh was an amazing dog. The first one that we had. 
And he was just a wonderful companion and lived in our house with us and sat on our couch, this great big ridiculous dog. People thought we were completely crazy. But you know, Pharaoh had a besetting sin. His besetting sin was he couldn't keep his head out of the trash can. And unless you have ever lived with a dog that is the size of a Shetland pony, you cannot understand what it is like to come home from church one day and see that the dog has been in the trash. The trash would not just be in a little corner where the trash can was. The trash would be covering every square inch of floor space that you have in your house. It was an astonishing thing. This was his besetting sin. He would do this over. And you'd say, well, you idiots, why didn't you just lock the trash can up? Because there was no way to keep him out of anything. He could get in anything. I would wear that dog out. I would yell at him and holler at him and wail on him and do everything under the sun. And he would look at me with this liquid eye, hang dog, tail between the legs, look, which clearly said, I know, I know, I'm so bad, I've done such a terrible thing, and I know you are so very, very angry with me. And then the second I turned my back, he'd be right in the trash So just be setting sin. You know, I think sometimes that when we sin, we feel sometimes that Jesus is very, very angry with us. But you know what? He's not. He's not. I have to remind myself. I have to, I have to remind myself to rejoice in the fact that all my sin, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross. That every single sin was forgiven and done away with. How could he possibly be mad at me now about something that he already took care of 2,000 years ago? He's not angry. The songwriter says, all my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin, fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. He's not angry. Now, of course, this message this morning is directed entirely at those who are saved, those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, those who are born again. To the saved, the Bible does say, he's not angry with you, but to the lost, to those who haven't yet made that discovery, have not yet found Jesus as their Savior, don't know if they're on their way to heaven, that's a completely different point of view. To those people, the Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day in Psalm chapter 11, and so if you're not saved, oh, I encourage you, why do you want to stay in that camp, when you could be in the camp where, you know, he's not angry with you and every sin is forgiven. But for us who are saved, but for us who are in Christ, we can have joy, we can remind ourselves today, he is not angry. I don't know about you, it brings me joy. Think about it. Number three. Number three, kind of similar. We can have Christian joy when we remind ourselves that Jesus has forgotten the things you've done wrong. He's not only forgiven. He's not only no longer angry about it. He has forgotten them. You really need to think about that for a while. You really need to let that get down in your brain for just a little while. Because it is an astonishing truth of the scripture. Jesus has forgotten your sin. And he has forgotten mine. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. There's another thing you ought to underline. Remember no more. Some people never forget. Some people never forget your sin. Some people never forget mine. Sometimes we don't forget other people's sin to our shame. We curl up in their face every chance we get. Uh, pray for forgiveness for them. Sometimes we can't forget the wrong we have done. Sometimes we can't forget our own sin. We, it's always before us. David said that, didn't he? In Psalm chapter 51, he said, My sin is ever before me. And we sometimes think Jesus is the same. But he's not. Jesus is not one who never forgets. Jesus is one who never remembers. Completely the opposite. 
on a sheet for There's an old gospel song. Old gospel song that says when we get to heaven and we say to Jesus, Oh, Jesus, forgive me for all that I've done. He's going to look at us with a smile and he's going to say, What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. For the book of life, they've all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. It's an astonishing, astonishing thing. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, there's no longer there. Of course, the way it's going, whiter than snow, Lord. I long to be whiter than snow. That's, that's what He does for us. He never gets tired of forgiving us for the same old sin. Committed over and over and over again. Because He has chosen to forget it each time. Now think about this. This is the truth. I believe this from my heart. Each time we confess it is the first time. Because he forgot it. He forgot it. Now we tend to think of forgetfulness as a, as a failing. I'm very forgetful. If you tell me your name, I'll have to ask you 15 times. I apologize in advance. That's just the way that I am. And the older I get, the more I forget things. It's a failing. But this is not a failing with Jesus. This is a choice. He chooses to forget our sin. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you can read about this on your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 4 through 8 talks about love. And it's saying all these different things about love. But there's one, one verse there that says specifically love thinks no evil. And what that literally means, you might see it in some other translation, it means it keeps no accounts of evil. If you have an NIV, uh, NIV Bible, it's translated this way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. That's Jesus. That's it right there. He forgets all about it. Washes the record clean. And doesn't remember again. Nobody is a better example of that kind of unconditional love than Jesus who's forgotten all you've done wrong. <laughs> Does that not make you want to rejoice in what you have in Christ? He has forgotten the things you've done wrong. Number four, another reason, another thing that will give us joy is to remind ourselves that Jesus helps us through our daily life. He helps us through our daily life. First John chapter 5 says, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who helps us to overcome. He is the one who helps us overcome our weakness and our sin. You remember Romans chapter 7 when the Apostle Paul was talking about uh, what a mess he was. Romans chapter 7 is, you see yourself in Romans chapter 7 if you're at all honest with yourself. And he kind of sums it all up. He kind of reaches the pinnacle of his, of his uh, describing how helpless he is. In verse 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Jesus who helps us. Jesus who helps us overcome our sins and our weaknesses in this life. We have this big word called sanctification. Sanctification is the process whereby we become more like Him. We become holy as we go. But sometimes we get really disgusted, don't we? Because it doesn't happen overnight. And we find ourselves continuing to fall on our face. And we find ourselves continuing to struggle with the same old junk that we always struggle with from the day we were saved. But Jesus is working in our life. It's a process. It just keeps right on going. And He's the one. He's the one who's at the very heart of that. He helps us to overcome our weakness and sin. He helps us to stay saved. He keeps us. I love Jude, verse number 24. It says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I'll underline that part. Keep you from falling. That's what Jesus is able to do. He helps us stay saved. He helps us stay saved. He keeps us. There's nothing you did to get it. 
There is nothing you can do to keep it. He gave it to you. He keeps it for you. He helps us stay sane. And he helps us by just praying for us. I think it's astonishing. Do you not think it's astonishing to think that Jesus is right now praying for you? How does that not make us want to rejoice? On Wednesday nights when I come here, we have a handful of folks who gather and we split up in various parts of the room. And I, I sometimes sit there while I'm waiting for my turn to pray and I'll listen to people praying all around the room. And I just rejoice at the fact that people are praying. And once in a while I'll hear somebody pray, pray for the pastor. And I, it just makes me feel good. I just rejoice and think, people are praying for me. Jesus is praying for you. Have you ever thought about the joy of that? The glory of that? Unbelievable. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Think about that. Think about how he is there helping you and keeping you and interceding for you and praying for you. And See if that doesn't increase your joy. Number five. We can have Christian joy when we remind ourselves that Jesus strengthens you when you get to the end of your rope. He strengthens you when you get to the end of your rope. And some of you may feel like you're there now. My Bible tells me in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Christ strengtheneth me. In my senior year at Waterford High School, I decided that I was going to go off the track. Ridiculous thing to do. Look at me. I was not an athlete then, any more than I am now. But I thought, I cannot finish my high school years without at least trying some sport. I had never been involved in a sport. So I went out for track. They had me do dumb little things like throw the discus. I was terrible at that. They had me throw, put the shot. I was terrible at that. But then they decided, I don't know whose brilliant idea this was, they put me in as a uh, relay runner. I couldn't run. But they put me in as a relay runner. And they had me run the 220 relay. Those of you who know about track and know about relay, you know what that means. That means it's a four-man team, and, and the team is a team race. One person starts off carrying a baton, and you get to the relay point, and you pass the baton to the next person, and boom, 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 all the way down until the last person crosses the line. In a 220 relay, you're running halfway around a track. So it's pretty much a dead sprint. Now this particular day, and I had run this a couple of times. I hadn't had too much trouble. I was no good at it, but I hadn't had fun. On this particular day, I received the baton. I can't remember what position I ran, but I received the baton and took off. And I thought to myself as I was running, this is the best I have ever run. I thought to myself that I was really just flying. Legs pissed in, arms pulled. I thought this was really good stuff. Until about two-thirds around when the rot set in and I suddenly started having all kinds of problems. And the problem that I had, I, I don't know how to describe this. It's never happened to me any other time in my life except then. My body just completely stopped working. It's the strangest sensation. Suddenly, I could not raise one leg an inch. I was hurtling along as fast as I could possibly run, and the realization came over me that any second I was going to fall flat on my face. Somehow, by sheer momentum, I managed to continue to float along, and I made it. I think I, think I was actually falling as I placed the baton in the guy's hand. But I, I, I literally, I fell like Roll off to the side of the road this way. I had come to the end of myself physically. And I always think about that. You know, there's a, there's a phenomenon in, I think, in distance sports. Nick could speak to this, I'm sure. Uh, I've heard it referred to as bonking, when you just absolutely deplete yourself to the point where your body just shuts down. Perhaps that's what happened. I don't know. But I had come to the end of myself physically. 
You know, I think sometimes we come to the end of ourselves spiritually. I think sometimes we get to the place where we spiritually bonk. Elijah, we talked about him last week. I think it was last week. Elijah had had a great victory on Mount Carmel and then he bonked. He came to the end of himself. 1 Kings 19.4, he says, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. I've had enough for it. Take me home. Sometimes we come to the end of ourselves spiritually. You know, at such times, here's where the joy comes. At such times, we find the strength that only comes from Jesus. Christ strengthens me. The very next verse, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number 5, says that as Elijah lay and slept under that juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And we see that he was strengthened and God came. Christ strengthens me. One man said, Courage is not having the strength to go on. Courage is going on when you have no strength. Jesus gives us that. John Wayne said one time, Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. I love that part. Jesus gives us that. In him, we have such a resource of courage and strength. He strengthens me. Number six. Number six. We can have Christian joy when we remind ourselves that Jesus believes in you. He believes in you. He believes in you and he believes in me enough to let you serve him. And that he has set aside a task and a job for you to do from eternity past. We read Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8 all the time. We love this verse. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We love that, don't we? Because it talks about our salvation and what a gift it is. But how often do we continue on to verse number 10? This is we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto or for the purpose of good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. He has not only saved us, that's not, that's not where the gift stops. He's also given us something to do. He's gifted us and he's given us a job to do. He believes in us enough to let us serve him, to let us work for him. To do the good work that he wants to. He believes in us enough to entrust us with the gospel. I'm amazed at that. First Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ, servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Those of you who have been in our Sunday school class talking about money, you know that word steward means someone who manages something that belongs to another. He has entrusted to us the gospel. This glorious news. This news that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's entrusted that to us. This news that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. He's entrusted us that to us. Does that not cause you to have joy? To realize Jesus believes in you to that extent. You. He wants you to be his witness. I don't know. Gives me joy. Makes a lasting impression on you, doesn't it? When somebody believes in you. When I was 16 years old, I went and I took my temporary driving test. And I passed. And I walked out all cocky to my mother who was sitting in the car. And to my amazement, she just held out the keys and said, would you like to drive? It might seem like a little thing, but for some reason that has stuck with me. I'm, I'm you know, 50-some years old now. And it's still stuck with me. She believed to be enough to entrust her life to me at that moment and let me drive the car. There's a scene in the Count of Monte Cristo, if you've ever read that book. Count of Monte Cristo, the priest lay dying and was trying to give a charge to his friend who was soon to become the count of Monte Cristo. They were, they were in prison seemingly forever. The priest is dying and he's trying to encourage this guy, don't let hate consume you, don't. And he tells him to let God work in his life. And the count of Monte Cristo looks at him and says, I don't believe in God. 
And the priest with his dying breath said, it doesn't matter. He believes in me. He believes in me. I don't know about you, but it gives me joy to know Jesus believes in you. And finally, the last one. We can have Christian joy when we remind ourselves, Jesus is waiting for you. He's waiting for you. John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, that you may be also. He's preparing for us, building for us, waiting for us. Does that not cause you joy? Hebrews chapter 12 pictures a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on in the Christian race. I love that picture. I have loved ones in that crowd. I have friends, uh, church members that have gone on before, folks for whom I have, I have officiated their funerals, and I, I know that one of these days I'm going to see them again. I look forward to seeing them, but all that pales in comparison to the fact Jesus is waiting for me on the other side. And he's waiting for you. Now again, of course, we're talking to Christians here today. You've never trusted Christ. Uh, this, is, this is a different thing that he's waiting for you for. You need to become saved so that you face him as your Savior, not as, not as your judge. But for the Christian, oh, Jesus is waiting. The story of the prodigal son, and with this so close, the story of the prodigal son, which we call it that, but it's really not about the prodigal son, it's really about the father. There is this beautiful, beautiful picture, is there not, of the father waiting for the return of the prodigal. And we see him watching and watching until the prodigal comes and he gets up and he runs to me. Well, a picture that is of Jesus and how he's waiting for you and for me. And so, remind ourselves that he's waiting for us. John chapter 15, verse 11, our text said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. One man said this, he said, Now that I know Christ, I'm happier when I'm sad than I was before when I was glad. That's the way we ought to be. That's the joy we should have. And I ask you this morning as we close, is, is that you? Is your life characterized by such joy? If not, reminding yourself of these things. Go through the little exercise. Remind yourself that Jesus loves you. Remind yourself that he's not angry with you. That he has forgotten every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. That he helps you through the trials and difficulties of your daily life. That he'll strengthen you when you get to the very end of your road. That he believes in you and that he's waiting for you. Try it and see if you do not experience the joy of the Lord.